You're listening to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where Jim and Patrick watch and discuss a drive-in double feature consisting of horror films, spy films, exploitation movies, erotic thrillers, sex comedies, and the like. Our ultimate goal is to determine if these two movies, randomly selected from a list of over 1,600, would make for a good drive-in double feature. We will be going through the plots of these movies in detail, so if you're concerned about spoilers, feel free to check them out before listening to us, and we'll be sure to point out if and when these films are available on various streaming services. Be sure to follow us on Twitter for any updates. That's at Podcast, no underscores, hyphens, or spaces. And let's get started. I'm your host, Patrick, and I'm joined by... Jim. So, Jim, and our dear listeners, this time we've got... Hellraiser, the movie that spawned nine sequels, at least seven or eight no one asked for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost leaning towards nine. I know a lot of people like Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, but we'll get to it at some point, folks. So we have Hellraiser from 1987 and also Hatchet for the Honeymoon from director Mario Bava from 1970 from Italy, the land of enchantment and escape from New York knockoffs. That is Italy. <laughs> In this case, kind of a psycho knockoff. Yeah, I was going to say uh, the bit. main character gives off some A little Christian bit of psycho, Bale a little vibes. bit of peeping Tom in there. Yeah. A lot of crime and punishment vibes. <laughs> yeah. We can talk about that. We can talk about how this film basically steals the character of Porfiry Petrovich right from Dostoevsky because I know that's what you're here to listen to but (laughs) before then we're going to talk about Hellraiser so Jim why don't you take her away okay so Hellraiser it's Clive Barker's directorial debut right yes and supposedly the reason he directed this movie was because he was so disappointed with the last couple of films that he wrote screenplays of, one of which was Rawhead Rex. I don't know what mm-hmm. the other one was. Clive Barker is primarily a novelist, short story writer. Yeah, yeah. He's he's big on the novellas. I always get him confused, though, with... Uh, oh, shit. Hold on. I have his name up here. Uh, I always I've get always him confused him with conf- John Carpenter for some reason. Oh, I've always gotten him confused with Neil Gaiman for some reason. Oh, really? I don't know. I've never read anything Neil Gaiman has written. I've barely read anything Clive Barker's read. I've read The Hellbound Heart, which this film is based off of, and I've probably read a short story or two of his that were in, you know, multi-author anthologies, because I used to read a lot of horror literature back when I was in, like, middle school, high school. But yeah, I don't know why I get him mixed up with Neil Gaiman. I I couldn't tell you, because I think of Neil Gaiman from Doctor Who, but that's a whole other story and a part of my past i'm not proud of before i get into this though did you know i think i hate neil gaiman and and it's (laughs) not his fault but again because i've never read anything he's written but neil gaiman is the polar opposite of me right he's british and he moved to wisconsin to teach oh like that's just a slap in the face to what i'm trying to do you know i'm (laughs) I'm born and raised in wisconsin and i'm moving to the uk to teach what the hell what the hell are you doing yeah mr Mr. gaiman why are you going to all places i mean like why are you going to america yeah like who who, yeah yeah, who who settles (laughs) in wisconsin really yeah but no hey did you know that they are or that they were supposed to be releasing a hellraiser reboot oh yeah i think um who was it that was in talks for it? I think it was, I want to say Eli Roth. I know it wasn't Eli Roth because if it were Eli Roth, I'd be very angry about this. But <laughs> I, I want to say it was someone who I'm like, oh, that could be in good hands. It's the guy that did, what's that guy's name? He's the guy that gets shot in an arrow with an arrow in your next. 
Oh, he did House of the Devil. I can't think of his name right now. Well, here, hold on. But I'm looking it up. Oh, on Looper from April 13th. Oh, wait, it says it's going to be directed by Clive Barker. Yeah, I don't buy that for a second. <laughs> no. Oh, no, no it's a story by name? Clive it's, Barker. He did The Innkeepers. He did House of the Devil. He directed an episode of the television series Scream. I can think of everything he's done. I can't think of his name. Oh, David Brooker. Oh, never mind. He He is... He's in that kind of community of the people I was thinking of, but that's not him. David Bruckner, I think he did The Ritual, maybe. That movie's okay. If you're into Scandinavian wilderness giant stag monster movies, you know, that's not bad. (laughs) Might be interesting if it ever gets made, but enough talking. The Ritual was made. It's on Netflix. (laughs) Get out of here. Hellraiser, 87. So we open with an introduction. We are introduced to Frank Cotton when he buys a puzzle box from a dealer. It's kind of like this oriental setting. A a dealer with possibly an offensive ethnic accent, although I can't really place it. It it doesn't sound right, though. You know what I mean? Also, a lot of the dialogue was redubbed. They redubbed it to get rid of the people's English accents because this was Yeah, that makes sense to me because this movie has a very... I mean, you can't really tell where it's set. The house looks very British, mm-hmm. like on the exterior, but we get mostly American accents. Um, Andrew Robinson's American. Ashley Lawrence is American. An unspecified amount of time later, in a bear attic, Frank solves the puzzle box. But on doing so, hooked chains emerge and tear him apart. We then see the room filled with swinging chains, and they're all covered in, in the remnants of his body, like the floor, the chains. There's this black post thing that's twirling around with parts of his body nailed to it, like his eyeball and part of his face skin, mm-hmm. which I don't understand how that worked, but it's disgusting. A robed figure then enters and picks up the box and returns it to its original state, restoring the room to normal. And this robed figure we all know now as Pinhead. Wait, is it? I thought it was the homeless guy. No, it's Pinhead, isn't it? Uh, maybe I'll have to go back and rewatch it. <laughs> maybe I'm totally wrong. Sometime later, a couple shows up, and it's Frank's brother, Larry, and his wife, Julia. Larry's played by Andrew Robinson, who yes. is the Scorpio killer in Dirty Harry, who mm-hmm. I want to say, I read something trivia for Dirty Harry, is that he was like a pacifist, and that, again, that's 1971, so it's kind of the tail end of like the hippie movement, I guess you could say. Yeah. And I thought maybe he like almost quit acting, but maybe I'm mixing up with George Lazenby for some reason, but at any rate, I know he was like a big time anti-violence like guy, and he even felt uncomfortable about doing some of the things that he had to do in Dirty Harry. Like there's a scene where he fires his gun, and the blowback, like almost, (laughs) you can tell he's like never fired a gun before. (laughs) But then apparently he got over that at some point, because this movie's a hell of a lot more violent than (laughs) Dirty Harry. That's what I was going to say, yeah. Maybe you can help me with this too. Larry and Julia are going to move into this house, but Julia doesn't really want to. They've moved from like Boston or Chicago or something like that. And I think this is their parents' house that they're going to move into, right? I guess, because they know Frank lived there at some point. They, I think they thought Frank was, like, living there now. So what happens is Larry is taking Julia around the house, sort of, and she makes her way upstairs. And Larry makes his way into the kitchen, where he finds a bunch of rotted food crawling with maggots and roaches, which is particularly disgusting because you can hear the noise all the maggots are making. But while Larry's disgusted at that, Julia finds a bed and suitcase upstairs, and she thinks it's squatter, so she calls her husband up, who points out that it actually looks like Frank's stuff, and that he's probably left again on some kind of adventure or something. As Larry leaves, Julia finds some BDSM pictures of Frank <laughs> and other women <laughs> in, his, uh, in his suitcase and stuff, 
But one of the pictures is this woman wearing like this big weird tribal mask. <laughs> I don't know. I laughed out loud at that. I'm sure, sure it wasn't meant for comedy. So a few days later, the couple are in the process of moving in, and we meet Larry's daughter, Kirsty, when she arrives at the house to help her parents. Ashley Lawrence, the woman that once married the Geico Gecko in a television commercial. Really? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you um, no, you don't get Geico ads because you're up in Canada. No, no, no. Oh I, my god. I used to get, get Geico, Geico ads all the time. But yeah, because uh, they're seen that the one. most. They have to be the most. Oh, that's from like 2003, probably. But mm. they have to be the most advertised thing on television. You can't avoid them. They're everywhere. <laughs> There's a guy. I fucking hate Geico just because of their ads. They run like three or four completely different advertising campaigns at once. It's insanity. Oh, my God. Uh, it's, listen, it sounds like hell. And and the thing is, like, the other insurance companies are catching up. State Farm is, is catching up to them. Progressive's catching up to them. America is just a nightmare of insurance ads upon insurance ads during your television commercial breaks. When I watch American TV, the American insurance ad that always shows up is the farmer's insurance ad or whatever it is. Or Oh, we yeah, are far- yeah. We are farmers. <laughs> There's also Liberty Mutual, which oh, yeah. whoever wrote the jingle for that was is the laziest person on earth. <laughs> it's just Liberty, 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 Liberty. Like what? Yeah, then what is that? <laughs> it's not a jingle. <laughs> so, so stupid. This episode is sponsored by Liberty Mutual. <laughs> and all the other shitty ads like that. No, we we will not accept Geico money. That that's a lot. <laughs> That's dirty money. We will never be sponsored by Geico, <laughs> which means we'll be the only thing on earth not sponsored by Geico within a year, probably. <laughs> moving back to Hellraiser, while Larry is moving this mattress up the stairs, he cuts his hand open on a nail. And I don't know about you, but this is the very, most... Very, very realistically, I might add. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you, you don't just cut open your hand. Yeah. <laughs> on the dull end of a nail like that i know i, know. I know. well and then on, on top of it it's like the most blood i've ever seen come out of somebody's hand it's just dripping it's like pouring out of his no oh, yeah it's like evil dead 2 levels of blood mm-hmm. yeah so with his dripping bleeding hand he makes his way upstairs to the attic where julia is and where she's reminiscing about an affair she had with frank literally just before she married larry they did it on her wedding dress up here, Frank just kind of, or sorry, Larry, pardon me. I'm going to get them confused throughout the whole movie. Well, at the end, that will make sense. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. Spoilers, they're the same person at one point. <laughs> yeah. In the attic, though, the blood soaks into the floor and coagulates in this gross, bloody, beating heart, which is kind of suspended beneath the floorboards. And then this heart eventually transforms into a skinless skeleton that oozes up from the floor. Julia discovers this when she excuses herself from a dinner party. And it turns out that this disgusting hunk of sinew and bone that's crawling (laughs) and talking is Frank. I I don't know about you, but the effects they did here were so amazing and it made me want to hold up like a barf bag or something. It was just so disgusting. Yeah, I was I was reminded of a few things. I got there was a little bit of the thing in there. Oh yeah, for sure. And then I was also reminded of something that came out way way later. But the evolution of the arm from Twin Peaks: The Return, which oh. the arm is the dwarf that talks backwards. But then they couldn't get Michael <laughs> J. Anderson for the third season, so they made that character into like a tree with like a brainy lump of flesh <laughs> at the at the top of it. And that's like there's a couple shots of that where it's like oh that's that guy again he's back 
The whole thing's disgusting, though. When Julia comes into the attic, there's like a pile of what looks like just like vomit on the floor that a bunch <laughs> that a bunch of rats are eating from. Uh, like it turned yeah, my stomach. There's a lot of rats in this movie. Yeah, too many. Do you think Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade holds the record for most number of rats in a movie? It's got to, right? It no, must. well, I, no, actually, no. It's Rats Night of Terror from <laughs> from <laughs> Italy from director Bruno Mattei. How could we forget? <laughs> oh, yes. How could we forget? Or, and I, I, I suppose both versions of Willard are worth pointing out. But <laughs> I mean, Rats Night of Terror. That is a lot of rats. Ratatouille is a pretty good contender, though. Isn't there just like one rat? <laughs> I think I've just never one seen rat, it. yeah. I've never seen it either. <laughs> the weird thing about all of this stuff going on in the attic, though, is that this disgusting lump of flesh then somehow convinces Julia to lure people back to the house so that Frank can suck them dry of their blood and flesh and stuff and turn himself back into a human. I don't know how. And yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of like if you've seen the 1999 version of The Mummy, the Brendan yes, Fraser yeah, Mummy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, you know, once he sucks the souls out of people, he gains more of his body back. That's basically what's going on here. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, because that's such like a ridiculous thing to end up getting a partner to help you with, like the mummy (laughs) hypnotizes people. Yeah, well, you know, here he just kind of promises her, like, "Hey, remember when we were we were together?" That one like, time. I'm sorry, but like, <laughs> sex is the last thing on my mind when I'm staring at that thing. I know, like, really. I, I know. I don't get it. I don't get it. It's, hey, it's maybe a little it's really like, yeah. Uh, well, and not just that, but like, what, even once we get more and more frank, more and more frank to you know <laughs> to have and to hold, she's never really convinced of his evil intentions. Even though the second she meets him, he's like. Hey, bring me people to kill. This movie quickly turns into Julia being a terrible person. Oh yeah, Ju- Julia in some ways is like the real villain here. Oh yeah, Julia, yeah, Julia and Frank are the real villains. The the Cenobites who you know that's kind of what we're here for. I mean, not literally. They they're not a huge part of the story, but mm-hmm. they're on the poster, obviously with Pinhead and everything. The Cenobites are are the selling point, I guess, of the series, but not necessarily of this movie because Clive Barker, who created this, I don't think he gives that much of a shit about the Cenobites. He kind of wants no. them to be like mysterious and not the focal point of the story. But yeah, Julia and Frank are the villains and and if you're not too familiar with this movie you wouldn't really expect that yeah i totally agree and i think i I, i've never seen any of the sequels but i mean to ask you (laughs) is this are any of them kind of like this one in no i well maybe the second one a little bit i can't follow the second one i have no idea what's happening the second one is like a nightmarish visuals and very little plot and then (laughs) the other ones are like i mean it's it's more and more pinhead in like every movie for the with the exception of the one that very clearly was a repurposed script it very clearly was not i think it's the fifth one it's very clearly not a hellraiser movie it's like this like police procedural like seven like dark (laughs) thriller (laughs) that like they throw like 30 seconds of Cenobite stuff in there. <laughs> it's 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 one of the most obvious. I mean, it's up there with the Cloverfield movies as okay, far as gotcha. like very clearly <laughs> repurposed. So trash is what you're saying. No, that's actually one of the best sequels because there's very little, <laughs> there's because very there's little very Cenobite little Hellraiser stuff. in it. It's right. it's actually a decent movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Clive Barker. Oh, check and it, it, well, well, Clive Barker had nothing to do with. He might yeah. have had. I think he might have written the story for the second one. I don't believe he wrote the script, but he basically he has nothing to do with all these Hellraisers. You know, Hellraiser versus Predator, all that stuff. Like he he has nothing <laughs> to do with that. 
Well, anyway, the next day, after Julia is convinced by Frank to lure people back to the house, she picks a man up at a bar and brings him back to the house where she is the one that actually murders him and she leaves him for Frank, who sucks him dry. I just want to say quickly, I actually do like this scene because you kind of feel bad for him until he acts like a bit of a dick towards her and then, yeah. and then you cease to yeah, care about him. Turn. But Larry comes home while Julia's hiding the body, unaware of what's going on in the attic, and he remains unaware for the rest of the movie. Yeah, he kind of completely loses his importance as a character, like, five minutes into the movie. He's just like, he doesn't mean anything. Yeah, he's just like a background character, a glorified extra or something. Yeah, although Andrew Robinson still gets a chance to shine, of course, even though the character itself is boring. Again, back to our spoiler... Well, after this, we get this strange little scene that seems completely out of place where Kirstie's working at a pet store and this dirty homeless man (laughs) walks in and he just starts eating handfuls of crickets out of the feeding cricket box. But this this is the second time we've seen this homeless man because there was a scene where she was walking with her boyfriend and Mm -hmm. she noticed him just staring at her from like behind some kind of door. Yeah. And so we don't know who this guy is. I mentioned I thought he was the dude in the that kind of opening scene. Uh, yeah, he's he's a confusing character, but he starts eating all these crickets and <laughs> he's a pterodactyl. Yeah, I know, I know. I was spoilers. Gonna... Yeah, again, more spoilers. He's a pterodactyl. Yeah, he's, he's, he's like a bizarre. dragon or something. I don't know what he is. <laughs> I know. I love that scene. Anyways. Moving on, it is presumably the next day when we again see Julia luring another man into the house, and after this victim is drained, Frank is becoming more and more human. He still doesn't have skin, but he has, like, I I like how he wears clothes, and he just bleeds right through them because because he has no skin. It's like, why bother wearing clothes? I know, it's disgusting. (laughs) I was like, just lay on the floor or something. But here we get Julia pressing him about where he was, what's going on, why he looks like this. And he says that the puzzle box that he bought would show the owner the pleasures of heaven or hell. And he didn't really care which one he was going to see. He, he was just looking for new sexual experiences. And now here, I, I might have missed something, Patrick, so correct me if I'm wrong here. He says that the Cenobites gave him a combination of amazing pleasure and pain. And we get shots of him getting, like, his skin ripped off and him hanging upside down and just blood dripping all over him. And then he says that he escaped somehow, that yeah. now he's out, and that the Cenobites are never like going to get him from again. Them or something. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know how, like, there's no explanation as to how he escaped, how he, why he's hiding, whatever, if it was so, well, if it felt I, I so good. Well, I think we can piece together why he's hiding well, yeah. and <laughs> ripping him apart, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't think we really know how. I don't think that really matters all that much i don't know all we know is i mean this is the first mention we have of the cenobites yeah which sound delicious by the way it sounds like (laughs) something you would get at cinnabon i know yeah well after talking to frank julia kind of reaffirms her commitment to him again for a strange reason there's no reason actually yeah i'm yeah A little while later, Julie and Larry are watching television, and they hear a bang from upstairs, which is Frank pounding on a wall. Again, for no reason. There's lots of for no reasons in this movie. I want to say there's a reason behind the wall. Well, I think... I think he wants to eat Yeah, at this point, I think he wants to kill his brother. I think he figures, like, I'm almost strong enough, I'm one body away, you know? Yeah. So Larry wants to go up and investigate this noise, but Julia is trying to tell him, it's just a storm outside, I left a window open in the attic, but Larry wants to go up and investigate anyways. To stop Larry from poking around too much, Julia tries to seduce him, and he gets into the attic anyways, but there's nothing there, and Frank isn't there. 
So they go to the bedroom anyways, but Frank is laying in wait for them in the closet, and he slips out with a switchblade. And I I found this scene really kind of disturbing, where Larry's trying to go to town on Julia, (laughs) and Julia is screaming, No, oh my god, please no, please don't, I beg you, please stop, as Frank is like walking closer towards them on the bed with a knife, and then he just cuts open a rat and leaves. I don't know, it was, that was certainly a scene. Well, the next day, on the advice of her father, Kirsty goes to her parents' house to check up on Julia because Larry thinks she's depressed, that she won't leave the house, and he's concerned for her. And this whole, like, uh, uh, screaming during sex thing was sort of the last straw for him. Although he probably didn't mention that part to his daughter. No, you're right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Julia is Kirsty's stepmother, I think. Yes, There's, like, yeah. a line that's... Which, yeah, her, okay. her real mother was killed, I think that was it. Through some... Cenobite shenanigans, perhaps, but probably not. <laughs> when Christy, Christy, fuck. When Christy, I mean, it's this. It, Kir, it, I hate Christy, Christy, it's the same Kirstie, thing because you you want to say Christy every know, time. I know. I <laughs> know. I've been practicing saying Christy so much just for this. Christy Alley from Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Right? Is she too many Christy? Kirst- I think it's Christy. Christy out. I think she's Christy. I think it's yeah, yeah. I think she's Christy. Too many Christies. That's all I know. No, there's not enough. There's too many Christies. That's why you're screwing this up. <laughs> oh my god. When Kirsty arrives at the house, she sees Julia bringing in a third victim. Kirsty sneaks into the house, and she hears the slamming of doors upstairs, so she makes her way up to the attic, but she runs into the new victim, who is still partially alive in this semi-dried, husk-like state. Frank then comes out of the attic and attempts to kill Kirsty, and he kind of reveals himself to her as being her Uncle Frank. Yeah, and this is, it's heavily implied in this movie, in this scene and a scene later, that Uncle Frank probably did very inappropriate things to her when she was younger. I think it's laid on even heavier later on, but yeah. there's definitely an a uncomfortable relationship between those two. And I think maybe even that's why, going back to the scene where they're moving into the house, she's away, she's getting her own place. I think part of the reason she's avoiding being with her father and stepmother that night is fear that maybe her uncle's there. Yeah, and I know that she does say that she doesn't like Julia, well, that too. You, you yeah, might be right I mean, there, she too. She sucks. They both suck. They're both <laughs> they They're both terrible murderers. people. Kirsty escapes by, one, kicking Frank in the nuts, in his newly formed nuts. Two, she also picks up the puzzle box, which is just on the floor in the attic, and she hurls it out the attic window. Yeah, which she has no idea what that is at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. She, she just picks up and Frank really wants it. And she goes, oh, yeah, you want this? You want this? And she hurls it out the window. So she runs outside and she picks up the puzzle box and just takes off running. I'm not sure where, but she eventually collapses. But luckily for her, she wakes up in a hospital. Unluckily for her, she opens the puzzle box in the hospital and comes face to face with this ugly, upside down, (laughs) fat scorpion. I love this guy. He's, this is, this is, I mean, this, this scene like breaks my brain a bit because this movie is a serious horror movie. It's, we're going for, I mean, it's violent. It's definitely violent. There's like some body horror elements, but we're going for disturbing, slow storytelling, just a really creepy story that mm-hmm. gets under your skin. That is, if you have any at all. But this guy is like rubbery as hell. He just looks kind of ridiculous because it's like, this, I mean, it's a cool monster design. He's this, um, he's kind of like a crescent moon shaped. He's got yeah. like something on his tail, like you said, kind of like a scorpion thing. And I mean, he's very clearly like hanging from like a string or something, but he's got these 
back legs that are up towards the ceiling that are supposed to be running along the walls and that's what's <laughs> propelling him forward but it's very clearly like he's just dangling from something because those legs do not look like they're propelling him at all this monster is just so goofy looking he's just, he's, he's, he's he belongs in a different movie <laughs> I, know. I like him but he doesn't belong in this movie he belongs in hellraiser debtor or whatever which is a real movie title even though it sounds like a joke i always forget the name of this movie but what was the one with the guy who starred in Jurassic Park that I'm pretty in sure was also a John Carpenter movie? Yeah, that, that monster belongs in that movie, in like the scene where he's running down the hallway. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with that. Well, actually, and I'll tell you what the monster's on, because you're right, he does look so goofy. He's on like a dolly. Yeah, okay, yeah. You can see the dolly in the bottom of the shot. You can see like the black base of the dolly. Oh, no, <laughs> yeah. no. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> and I was like, oh, Long no. <laughs> You know, I, I will say this this movie is, I mean, it's a it's a well-directed movie. But I, I want to draw attention to, again, Clive Barker is a, he's not even primarily a screenwriter. He's primarily just a writer. And you have directors, unless you're like an independent filmmaker, generally your first job in filmmaking isn't going to be a director. You kind of have to work up from that. So a lot yeah. of people come from their editors or their, Mario Bava, for instance, is a cinematographer. We'll get to him. I feel like jumping from screenwriter to director is a pretty big jump. You know what I mean? Yeah. It takes a lot of balls. It takes a lot of balls. I think this is a very well-directed movie. It's a hell of a lot better directed than Rawhead Rex, but <laughs> that's not saying that much. <laughs> yeah. I give him props. I honestly do. I give him props for not being Neil Gaiman first off. But yes. <laughs> Although, I don't think so, but this might contribute to my confusion of the two, is that Clive Barker is a gay man. He is a gay man. Is he really? Yeah, and and I don't I don't think that contributed to my confusion because I didn't even know about that for like years until after I was already familiar with him. But but he is, and Hellraiser is like Hellraiser. This movie, the series in general, is like kind of a celebrated film within like the BDSM community, oh, yeah, I like bet. the LGBTQ plus. <laughs> and I mean, I don't get it. This, this, no, it's this, I, do, I do not see anything in this movie that, that I want to emulate in any way. But, you know, for those that do, more power to them, I guess. Yeah, go for it, I guess. Dress up like Pinhead and rip flesh from people if that's what you're Or the intent. one with the vagina neck. Yeah, that one, Yeah, what's your name? Isn't it like... Uh... I don't. They, if you ask me, the names are all unofficial because yeah. Pinhead kind of just was... Well, and, and we might as well introduce them because after Kirsty gets away from this mm. scorpion dude with the dolly, <laughs> this is when they arrive in her hospital room. Yeah. And so there's Pinhead. There's the first one that shows up is like the teeth chattering guy. Yeah. The chatterer. The chatterer. Okay. Yeah. These names like, I but like Clive Barker didn't come up with these names. These are just names that fans and the people working on the movies came to call them. So that's kind of become their official names. But I think like pinhead in the because he's popped up in a few clive barker books and i think he's like the well i think he's credited in this movie doug bradley who plays him i think he's credited as lead cenobite yeah but i think he pops up in a few clive barker works and he's called like maybe like the prince of hell or something like it, it's like a it, kind of a generic name like I mean, that that would make sense i guess yeah except i'm not sure he's from hell i don't know he's from it seems like he's from like a different dimension not necessarily a hell again in this movie in other movies, he's from a video game. I mean, what, where are we going with that? But, <laughs> yeah, so, we, so we've got Vagina Neck. We've got the Chatterer guy. We've got Butterball. That yeah, guy's I love name that is one. Butterball. 
because I mean that's what he looks like. It's a fair name, and obviously Pinhead, he's got you know the acupuncture <laughs> thing on his head, so I mean yeah. that's a fitting name. But it's always Clive Barker always I think always hated it. I maybe Doug Bradley hated it too. I don't know, but it's it's a goofy name for this character that's supposed to be serious and intimidating, and again mysterious. I don't want to know this dude's name personally. No, exactly. Well, first off, I, I like the lead up. Not I'm not running away from the upside down scorpion. <laughs> But I like <laughs> I like when Kirsty gets into the room and then it starts to kind of transform where all the yes. all the bricks on the wall turn black and then there's like yellow light behind it and mist starts mm-hmm. coming through. I think that's absolutely gorgeous. It's just amazing the way it looks. And even right when she solves the puzzle box, the way the wall just rips open, that's pretty cool. Oh yeah, for sure. Also, we ought to mention the score of this movie, which, in my opinion, might be the best thing about it. Yeah, it's it's a great score. By Christopher Young, it kind of seems like there's like two tracks that get repeated in, in kind of different ways throughout the movie, but you've got the one where it's very slow and brooding and stringy. That's how the movie opens with that. And then there's also the one that's more like hellish and, and just intimidating. And that like starts with those like bells ringing and that stuff is awesome. Oh, yeah. The, I, both of those things are great. It's a fantastic score. When Kirsty meets the Cenobites, it seems as though they're going to kill her or I guess torture her in the way that they tortured Frank. But she clearly doesn't want that to happen. So she tells them that Frank is actually still alive and... Pinhead, the quote-unquote lead Cenobite, he says, that's impossible. Nobody ever escapes us. And she says, well, he's out at my at my parents' house. And they kind of strike a deal where she will lead the Cenobites to Frank in exchange for her life. Which I've never understood this. Well, first of all, because they also need Frank to admit or to, like, yeah. confess that he escaped, which I don't know why they need that. But, but again, they appeared to Kirsty. I assume they're in this dimension now. I mean, I get your pinhead. You don't want to go walking down the street when you look like that. But like, <laughs> couldn't they just go over to his house? Yeah, again, I don't get it. I don't I don't know why it's so confusing and convoluted. Unless you have to take the puzzle box. Yeah, th- th- well, there's there's a lot with the puzzle box that I don't quite understand. In oh, this don't worry. Either because we'll get to that very shortly. It's supposed to be this like difficult thing to solve, right? I mean, <laughs> I guess so. I think, but Kirsty solves it like on accident. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, okay. Well, or was it? Or was it? Maybe it was like in a position where it was like basically solved. All you had to do is like push one thing because that's when Frank had it. But if that was the case, why would Frank have it anywhere near that? Because if that brings the Cenobites, he doesn't want to solve the puzzle box again because they're going to come get him. He's hiding from them. Yeah. Listen, I agree with you. I think there's lots of questions around this puzzle box that I definitely don't understand. There, there are a lot of things I like about the movie Hellraiser, and virtually none of them are the plot. <laughs> I think this movie is sort of a mess when it comes to that stuff. Back at the house, Julia and Frank are trying to figure out what to do about Kirsty because she's escaped. And they decide that they have to leave, they have to go into hiding, and that Frank will kill Larry to fully transform. Then, unfortunately for Larry, he shows up at the door, and Julia leads him upstairs. A while later, Kirsty comes home, and she, she's still dressed in her hospital garb. She escaped the hospital, but she's come home to warn her dad about Julia and Frank. But she finds her father calm, and he apparently knows about, he knows all about Frank. Apparently, Julia told him. Yeah, he says Frank's dead now, and they don't have to worry about him. Yeah, but something doesn't seem right. And he has all kinds of bloody gunk in his hair, around his hairline, and his manner is just a little off. Well, it turns out that 
that Larry is actually Frank, and Frank killed Larry and is, I guess, somehow wearing his skin. I don't know. <laughs> And she finds out because she scratches off half his face. Yeah, exactly. It's disgusting. (laughs) Uh, So Julia and Frank try to kill Kirsty, but Frank kills Julia in the process for some reason. I don't know why. And he kind of sucks the life out of her. Oh, I I have a theory on this as to why. Okay. I think, well, first of all, again, Julia was dumb to trust this monster man, right? I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. Because she truly believes that, like, they were just going to live happily when this guy's, like, <laughs> he's killing people left and right. I mean, yeah. I don't... I think the, the, the thought process here for Frank in Larry's body is, again, going back to the disturbing implications of his relationship with his niece. I think she's there now, and he's like, I don't need Julia anymore. I want Kirsty. I think that's the reasoning there. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. I mean, I see what you're saying. Because then she, he's doing all the, like, come to daddy stuff, and yeah. Yeah, it's a little creepy. Not a, not a little. Yeah, it's creepy. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely creepy. Kirsty leads Frank upstairs, and she leads him up to the attic, where he repeats to her that he is Frank, he's Uncle Frank. And this is when the Cenobites appear and hook him again. And uh, it's and just as he's about to stab Kirsty, he gets a hook through the hand, and then he just starts getting hooks through various spots on his body and a huge hook through his back to play defense lawyer here i don't think what frank says here counts as a confession and they said they needed a confession yeah what did he say he was like well because he doesn't say anything about hiding from the cenobites he doesn't mention the cenobites at all in this scene he's just like i mean he's talking about he probably mentions that he killed his brother and i guess maybe that's enough but didn't he say come to daddy come to uncle frank Probably. Yeah, then, yeah, he said something like up. that, but like, that, that's not a confession. It's a confession of one thing, but not what the Cenobites were interested in in the previous scene we saw them in. Yeah, yeah. But you do have to admit, this scene is a great scene because oh, it's absolutely. absolutely disgustingly terrifying. This is one of my favorite, it might be my favorite death scene in a horror movie ever. Although it's more abrupt than I remembered it, but it's still incredible. It's almost burned in my head the image of all the hooks in his face, just like tearing his face off. And oh yeah, the, the face is, is a little goofy looking. It's a little... Remember that Doctor Who with the stretched out face thing? Yeah, yeah. I've seen two episodes of Doctor Who and one had a face that was like stretched out over like a, over like like a, a laundry, rack. like one of those drying <laughs> racks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it reminded me of. Just with a lot more blood. (laughs) Yeah. He has a a great line here, though, because even the Cenobites tell Kirsty, I think Pinhead says, look look away, this is not for you to see. And she continues to watch, and then she closes her eyes, and when she opens them, Frank in Larry's body, uh, I guess, is being... He's doing the tongue thing. Yeah, he's doing the tongue thing, and he's being slowly ripped apart, but then he says, and Christ wept, and then he just explodes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to like blood yeah, and guts. He says Jesus wept. And That's those it. Are his yeah. last words. Oh, and so cool. I don't know why he says that. I have no idea. I mean, that is we all know that's the shortest verse of the Bible. <laughs> but I failed to see the relevance of, yeah, of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I guess yeah, here. I don't. I definitely don't see it. unless it was like. <laughs> I I want to say it was an improvised line by uh, Andrew Robinson, but that still doesn't explain <laughs> why it's in the movie i guess i don't know unless it was just added because when they were doing all the redubbing maybe it was just added they thought hey you know it'd be really cool if we add something here but i don't know I-, I don't get it but it's a cool line to add i guess right before somebody explodes with a bunch of hooks in them <laughs> 
Well, after this, though, the movie really goes off the rails because the I would lights... say downhill as well. Personally. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, this is this is all like this all feels like slapped together. Yeah. Like... The Cenobites who had agreed to exchange Kirsty's life for Frank turn on Kirsty, but she manages to send them back to hell like one by one by using the puzzle box. She sort of like holds it up to them and a piece will release itself from the puzzle box and she'll snap it back into place and then they'll kind of just snap out of existence. And Scorpion guy comes back and he's trying to grab the <laughs> yeah. puzzle box which and so we get those close-ups of those rubbery hands <laughs> reaching for the yeah. box. And she's like slapping the hands and the hands are just kind of dangling, you know, like gremlin hands. <laughs> yeah. At you know, at some point too, her boyfriend, this guy that she's seeing shows up and helps her out. Who's an utterly pointless oh, character. Absolutely. Otherwise. He almost gets killed by a butterball, but then a chunk of house yes. falls on butterball. But they leave the house and it collapses and burns. And then I don't know if they go to a dump where there's separate fires or if they stay at the house and watch it burn down. But they go to... You see, it's a different location. It's like by yeah. the river. I think that's the Thames. I think this is shot. Oh, I mean, it's a British movie. I think it's shot in London. I couldn't tell you where it's supposed to take place. And they throw the puzzle box into one of these fires. But then... The craziest ending to a movie, the homeless man walks up and he walks into the fire and grabs the puzzle box and his clothes and his flesh melt away to reveal this like skeletal demon with wings. It looks like a pterodactyl. <laughs> but well, he's got like a horn too. So I think it's like a flying devil. Yeah, like a flying thing, devil. Or a dragon maybe. I don't know. Doesn't matter. But he flies the box back to the dealer. The dealer is in the process of selling it again. And that's it. So Patrick, what do you think? I like Hellraiser. I think it's a good movie. I don't love it, although it is a movie that I enjoy a little bit more just about every new time I see it. Although I will say, and this is not a knock against the movie's quality, but I've probably fallen asleep to this movie more than any other movie. <laughs> but that's just that's just because it's been on Shutter since I've had Shutter, so I'll just like throw it on when I'm going to bed. <laughs> anyway, that's by no means a knock against the quality of the movie. But yeah, I mean it's good. I don't you know, like I said, I don't love it. There's a lot of I'm, I don't really like anything. <laughs> pretty much in the storytelling it's visually it's kind of neat i mean visually the makeup effects the special effects and stuff is fantastic there's a lot of creativity involved and the score is fantastic I, those those aspects of it i really appreciate i really enjoyed watching it you and i spoke briefly before recording oh yeah you mentioned you had seen this on tv and i'm like oh then you haven't seen it if you saw it like edited for television i can't imagine there's a TV <laughs> yeah. edit out there that does this movie justice because know, of yeah. how violent and bloody it is. The two times I've seen this has been on like AMC around Halloween. Yeah, there was definitely some pieces missing, but so I got to experience Hellraiser in its in its full glory. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it, but I, I completely agree with you. I like the score, the effects, except for the upside down scorpion. He's the worst. I mean, he's enjoyable on in, in a different Well, yeah, he's way. neat to look at. But, uh... <laughs> I mean, he's, <laughs> he belongs in a David Dakota movie. <laughs> But yeah, for me, the movie really falters with the plot because there's just so many like unanswered questions and confusing points to it. And it just really goes downhill in like the last like 10 minutes when Kirstie is is escaping. Well, the like, like the last five minutes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I will tell you, I forgot that that homeless man turned into uh, a flying devil demon. <laughs> Just turned into Satan or whatever that <laughs> supposed to be. I know, I know, I was surprised by that. <laughs> I, I still don't know how to feel about that particular scene. I don't know if I love it or if I hate it because it's it's weird. It's, it's, it's out there and schlocky, it's incredibly silly. You know? Clive Barker was very smart to not leave the camera on that flying skeleton for too long. In fact, you don't even see it fly because when we cut to it flying, it's shot from its point of view so the camera is going away from them and like okay that is a clever way to get around just how ridiculous that thing looks yeah i think there are some i guess minor issues with with the plot but for clive barker's first movie as a director i mean this is pretty great kudos to him yeah i mean it's good i'm not too passionate about it one way or the other i think it is pretty good i feel like with this movie kind of similarly to how i feel with alien it's a horror classic, undisputed. I'm not about to argue that, but it's like not my favorite movie, you know? Yeah. Although I probably enjoy this a little bit more than Alien. Really? Well, yeah, because, well, here's the thing. If I had seen Alien nearly as many times as I've seen Hellraiser, that would be the movie I've fallen asleep during the most. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> it might be the only Hellraiser movie worth watching. I've seen them all. I, I first of all, I, I we're going to kind of wrap up this Hellraiser discussion on me saying I hate the Hellraiser franchise. <laughs> I do like this movie again, but this is the lamest franchise. I mean, it's been direct to video <laughs> since movie five, so oh, no. six of the ten movies are direct to video. <laughs> so I mean, that's not a great sign, right there. <laughs> it's just yeah it's like hellraiser 3 is pure schlock so that's kind of good hellraiser 3 is kind of like the slasher movie of the hellraiser movie, so that movie's it's a bit of a guilty pleasure and then hellraiser inferno i think is the scott derrickson one that's the clearly repurposed script that movie's okay everything else is like sucks i mean <laughs> hellraiser 4 is hellraiser in space and that's not very good. And Hellbound Hellraiser 2, a lot of people like. I'm not really a fan of it, but I mean, I, I guess I get why people... That that movie feels similar enough to the original Hellraiser that it's not a complete waste of my time, but I'm just not the biggest fan of it. Anybody out there listening, I guess you can take the Hellraiser franchise at Patrick's word. The first one's worth watching, the rest are shit, so... <laughs> A sentiment which I will repeat when we get to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, <laughs> almost verbatim, because because that one too, the second one, a lot of people like that, and I'm just like, yeah, it's not for me. Although, actually, I want to say the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake was okay. It's not bad. Hell, even the most recent, the, the random, the Leatherface prequel that nobody asked for actually isn't that bad of a movie. When did that come out? 2017. What? It was like the biggest flop of the year, I want to say. What? I missed this. How did that come out? Yo, I never even heard it was coming out. I think whoever (laughs) released it was like, oh, no one's going to see this. So we're not just going to put... I think it was released basically as like, we know we're going to lose money on this. So we're not going to put anything into advertising because then we'll just lose more money. But you know, if they had released it as like a Cloverfield movie, then I'm sure some people would have gotten to see it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, Cloverfield and their fraudulent sequels. <laughs> so, on to Hatchet for the Honeymoon, which is a movie that, in preparation for this, I had never seen it before. I've seen my share of Mario Bava movies. They tend to be very enjoyable. They're beautiful to look at, which this one is too. Just gorgeous cinematography. Bava does the cinematography here as well as the direction, which I think is something he shares with a lot of the other movies, maybe all of the other movies he directs. But Mario Bava, of course, is one of the big three of Italian horror directors who 
my personal opinion, I, it's really just a big two, but I'll give, you know, because I'm not a Fulci guy, but people put Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, Mario Bava all on that top, the upper echelon of Italian horror. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny because all three of their movies have like the same things in common. They're all pretty darn violent. Fulci is like insanely violent and Argento isn't that far behind him. And then Bava comes around earlier. So you don't have extreme violence in like the early 60s, but he's still doing more violent stuff in those movies than other filmmakers would have been doing. And then he does a Bay of Blood in 1972, which is really, really quite gruesome for for its day. <laughs> Although it's the same year as Don't Torture a Duckling and <laughs> Fulci kind of one up so I'll give him that. I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah, so Mario Bava kind of got his start in horror films with 1960s Black Sunday. I had to think because there's Black Sabbath he also directed, which we see a couple scenes of Black Sabbath in this movie. That's what's on television or whatever. (laughs) So masturbatory Mario Bava, that's what we call him, (laughs) folks. Uh, But yeah, anyways, I mean, 1960, talk about a huge year for horror movies. And I'm pointing this out here because two of the three great 1960 horror movies were seem to be huge inspirations on this movie. And that's, well, really three, I guess, if one of them was directed by the same guy. But yeah, 1960, you could argue the three greatest horror movies of all time came out that year. You've got Psycho, you know, it needs no introduction, the Gus Van Mm -hmm. Sant, Vince Vaughn film, and then... Peeping Tom, directed by Michael Powell, the movie that ru- that that destroyed Michael Powell's career because it was so controversial when it came out, obviously has been critically reevaluated and is believed to be a masterpiece in horror cinema, British cinema, cinema of the world in general, rightfully so. And then Black Sabbath. No, shit, I did it. Black Sunday. I'm sorry. He does the... <laughs> He's, he does the black movies. I'm sorry. <laughs> the black <laughs> he movies? did Black Caesar with Fred. <laughs> he did Black Caesar with Fred Williamson. Blackula. Uh, yeah, no. I mean, he's. Well, here's the thing. I've noticed this. I've noticed something with Mario Bava. His best movies all start with the letter B, or at least they seem to. His best horror movies, anyways, because you've got Black Sunday, Black Sabbath, both great masterpieces, A Bay of Blood, which is also called Twitch of the Death Nerve, but let's not confuse anybody. Italian horror <laughs> movies, and they're multiple titles. It's confusing. See Zombie slash Zombie 2. And then also Blood and Black Lace might actually be my favorite Mario Bava movie. That's starring pre-washed-up alcoholic Cameron Mitchell. So, you know, that's a good movie. Which, that, that was a very short period of time where you could say that. It was like washed-up alcoholic Cameron Mitchell almost from the get-go, so... You know, that's, that's, you gotta cherish those films when you come across one where he's not that. I am familiar with all these Italian directors in name only, I think. Oh, not even Argento, because you, when we were, when I was I assembling so. the list, I, you told me to put Argento on here, and I'm thinking, oh, I like, did, of didn't course I? he's on here. Yeah, I, I, so I assumed you were an Argento fan. Okay. Oh, yeah, I'm trying to think. What was, uh, what was, uh, is it maybe because I watched, uh... Suspiria. Suspiria, probably, right before. I love Suspiria. Suspiria is in my top five favorite horror movies, probably. Oh, yeah. Which one do you like better, the original, or do you like the remake? The original, but, I mean, they're both good. They're yeah, both very good. I agree with And they're, they're good in different ways. So anyways, Hatchet Before the Honeymoon is your first Mario Bava joint. That's exciting. It is, yeah. I'm curious on your just initial thoughts before we delve into the plot a bit. Initially, I thought 
uh oh, what is Patrick getting me into? Is this going to be what? something? Come on, you can't you, you can say that about Doctor Alien. You can't say that about this. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, I was watching it. I was watching it. and I was like, uh, you know, it, this is this is very Italian, and I kind of had to giggle. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I had to giggle because of like all like the really close ups and like dramatic zooms and stuff like that. But once I actually got into the movie. I the really, score is very Italian too. It, yes, sounds like it's yeah. something that maybe it's not Ennio Morricone, but it sounds like it almost could have been a score by him. Yeah. Once I actually got into it, I can honestly say I loved this. I'm sure we'll talk about it more throughout our discussion on the plot and at the end. At the end, I think I was blown away by it. And okay. uh, yeah. Also, quick question: Did they actually go to Paris to film parts of this, or was that just like stock footage? That's a good question. I I don't know specifically. I could tell you that Italian movies around this time, they loved pretending they weren't Italian, you know? (laughs) And that usually means pretending they're American. And I had always for for like assumed that was like, okay, we're going to pretend we're American because that means we can sell in America, a bigger country, more money to be made there through distribution. Mm -hmm. But I've come across some interesting insights that actually makes it seem like honestly that's for the italian market i think they are obsessed with things that seem american there was this one and i I don't remember his name but i think this is like the late 60s there was some like italian pop star who released a song that is literally oh the lyrics are complete gibberish Mm -hmm. but it was written to sound as if it were american english yeah yeah. And it was like a top 10 hit of the year <laughs> for, for Italy because I think people hear that and they're like, oh, it's an American song. And like, so I think I think that the Italian obsession with things that are pretending to be American is a bit more complicated than I thought. It's not like the Canadian, you know what we have with screwballs or like the original Black Christmas where you'll see American flags everywhere. That's not for the Canadian audience. That's to trick Americans into thinking this is an American movie. <laughs> exactly. I don't yeah. think that's quite the case here with Italian movies. Maybe that's part of it. But yeah. Yeah, and as for like the the set in a European city, that's that's like a Jalo stable. The Jalo genre. This movie departs from that in a lot of ways. That but like the Jalo that I'm familiar with is it's it's a murder mystery. Usually the only thing we see of the killer is like black gloves and his or her weapon. Usually a straight razor or um, switchblade, something like that. The person investigating is usually not a police officer. It's usually just like some guy. And it's usually like, I think it's usually like an American who's like in a European city. So he's, it's like kind of a a person who's like not really familiar with their surroundings that much. Like uh, Deep Red is a, I think he's a musician. He's played by an English guy, but he might be American. The character might be an American in that movie, but he's hanging around Rome, I think. And in uh, Tenebrae, it's uh, an American author in, that one's also Rome, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I don't know, those are both Dario Argento movies, they're both great. They're both better than this, but this one's, you know, it's pretty good too. But yeah, so this this first opening scene actually is a real first departure from, again, the giallo that I'm familiar with. Because we open on a train, and we have someone sneaking out. He does have the black gloves on, and we're like, okay, something's going to happen. Someone's going to get killed. But then almost right away, we see the guy's face. Which I was not expecting. Yeah, me and neither. The the person is John Harrington, who's played by Stephen Forsyth. He's our stage one of actor fame. He does not have a Wikipedia page, folks. So I don't know who the hell this guy is. He's some guy. <laughs> but anyway, so John Harrington sneaks into a cabin, or is that what you call them? Cabins and trains. Yeah, a c- c- car, c- coach. Well, no, know. the car is like the oh, bigger yes, yes, thing. Yes, yes, yes. 
cabin. Yeah, anyways, anyways, he kills people. That's that's what happens here. <laughs> he, he kills a honeymooning couple. He actually might not kill the man because we get narration from him later where he says he's killed five women. But I also think that's psychologically he's only acknowledging the women he's killed. Mm-hmm. So I, I, th- I think he kills them both, but... I don't know. And but during the scene, he also like he sees like a boy just standing in the car, of the train kind of looking at him. And then he also has some kind of disjointed flashback of coming up the stairs and something. We don't know what's going on there. We'll learn more about that. So we then see John Harrington at his his lovely French mansion, which also works as his like office because he runs a like a bridal fashion design store or something. Yeah, that he inherited from his mother. Although that doesn't make that much sense when we get, well, fuck it, but we'll get into that. Because <laughs> <laughs> he would have inherited it when he was like seven. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that. I was like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I'm like, oh, that actually doesn't make sense. So this is where we get some John narration, and he's talking about how he kills women on their wedding days. And, I mean, he seems like just a hateful asshole, but, like, it, it's also connected to he gets these flashbacks. He's he's trying to remember some kind of trauma that happened to him in the past that he doesn't quite remember. So, like, each time he's about to kill someone, he sees more and more of what happened in the past. And this is also kind of a very jalo thing. Both the two movies I mentioned earlier, Deep Red and Tenebrae, have something kind of like this where we see this thing in the past and we're not sure how it ties to things in the present day. But as the movie goes on, we understand that. You know, I just want to say it's it's kind of like uh, when I first... <laughs> heard that i thought it was kind of stupid i was like oh what a dumb premise but then i thought oh you know it's whatever well but then i thought actually that's kind of cool i I don't know it was just cool is what i thought that's it i mean he i mean he's it's (laughs) it's more interesting than he's just a psychopath who kills people right yeah yeah i mean throughout the movie i think i think at least i certainly felt this that i was one step ahead of the story and i knew what he was going to eventually learn in that flashback pretty early on but Mm -hmm. i like that he's still wanting to learn and and even like i think you can argue maybe he knows but he's just kind of blocked it you know he but anyways we'll see so we meet his lovely his lovely lovely wife mildred who (laughs) hates him and I, I love that she's named Mildred. Because I know. Mildred, there's no like older, stuffier sounding name than me. And she is older than him, but not much older. Like you, you'd picture like Mildred. I don't I don't think I've ever like Mildred is like. I've, yeah, I've never women, met a Mildred under 60. 70 up. I think no Mildred actually has the name, birth name Mildred. I think they just take that nickname when they hit 65 or something. <laughs> Yeah, so his wife hates him. He's asked for a divorce. She said no. And you think, well, why? And especially because she reminds him that she's the money between the two of them, even though he inherited the house yeah. and his bridal gown shop business. Yeah. She is, is the reason all none of that has gone under or been like foreclosed on or whatever the French equivalent is. Like, So she's the money. So like, why doesn't she want a divorce? I get the impression it's just to fuck with him. Yeah, I like guess she, so. she hates him that much that she's just like, no, right? Well, yeah. Well, at one point, I think early on, she says, you know, I'm going to be here whether you like it or not or something like that. And it's just like, well, why? Till death like do us part. Because then he, then he mentions like, well, that's kind of a vague answer, you know, referring to the newspaper. That woman didn't know she was going to die the day of her wedding day. <laughs> Listen, I just looked up something and you're not going to believe this. <laughs> Principal photography for this movie took place from September to October of 68, primarily in Barcelona. 
the okay. villa, the fo- the former villa of Francisco Franco served as the Harrington household. Holy shit. Oh, no. <laughs> it's oh, Franco's uh, villa. <laughs> Antifa, cover your ears. <laughs> that is interesting, though. I mean, that's weird. I mean, I, I've never been to Francisco Franco's house. I've been to I've been to Garibaldi's house in Rome. Oh, really? I at least say it was his house or it was something. He did something there. I don't know. It's it's the home of the Irish embassy in, in, in Rome right now. That's why I was there. Yeah, so Mildred hates him. Mildred even says, like, hey, I'm I'm doing the seance later. Come join us. And, and, and he's like, what? Your seances are just about trying to reach your dead husband. And she's like, yeah, and I like him more than you. <laughs> like, she's very direct. She doesn't yeah. like him. A model named Helen Wood comes to the home slash business seeking employment, and she gets hired. John then, after hiring her, goes into this little secret room he's got connected to his office. He's got a room full of mannequins there. He kisses one of them. <laughs> you, know, you know, we're getting, this is getting a little <laughs> creepy here. And also the score at this point is like getting really psychedelic. I, I really like this score. It goes to strange territories, I guess you could say, as a film score. It feels very late 60s, early 70s, but I kind of like it. It's appropriate for the movie, really. I don't remember the score from this scene, but I do remember this actor's got cra- uh, great crazy eyes. They just look crazy, and you're like, oh yeah, this guy's nuts. <laughs> so, I probably didn't mention this at the beginning, but his weapon of choice here is <laughs> like a... Uh, it's not a hatchet, first of all. This, this, is, this title is a lie. Like many, many Italian horror film titles... including zombie 2 this movie title is a lie but at the same time it's a pretty great title i think you gotta agree with me on that i i agree with you but you know what it is in italian the red sign of madness that's that's not a good title no it's not yeah hatchet for the honey it doesn't it's it's it tells us less about the movie than this one does and it's more generic and also this is the second episode in a row where we are doing a movie whose title could easily be the title of the movie ready or not but it's just not like because we had game of death last time (laughs) we've got hatch for the honeymoon here that's a perfect title for for ready or not although this this movie had me questioning my sanity i'm like this 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 weapon that he has that's not a hatchet (laughs) and then i had to i had to like look up what a hatchet was and like i obviously i thought i knew what it was patrick i did the exact same thing (laughs) it's an axe that's wielded with one hand so even Antelene's axe in Ready or Not is not a hatchet, but it's closer than this thing is because he's got like a, a cleaver, like a meat cleaver. My whole thing here was, I was like, wait a minute, that's not a hatchet. Wait, am I wrong? It do Am I? Yeah, I, I I had to question myself, like, is is hatchet just like a generic term for yeah. like a sharp object or something? No, it's a pretty freaking specific term. Well, then I spent time looking up what the Italian title of this movie was and then seeing if there was like a mistranslation somewhere. And I think hatchet in Italian is hachette. <laughs> so I was like, okay, that's... Jowl movies oftentimes have really, really fun titles. They're super wordy. They tend to be super wordy. And again, this is... These, I'm talking about like the English versions of these. The, I, most of these I don't think are direct translations of titles in Italian. I mean, I know Deep Red, obviously, Profondo Rosso. But you've got movies like, again, Twitch of the Death Nerve, even though Bay of Blood is the more commonly used title that actually describes the movie a bit better than Twitch of the Death Nerve. (laughs) Twitch of the Death Nerve is just a great title. And then you've got uh, my personal favorite, and I've still never seen this movie in its entirety, but it's, what is it? Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only Eye of the Key. (laughs) 
<laughs> that is the title of the Get movie. The like, talk about here. overcompensation. <laughs> that's that's a movie. It's on Prime, at least in the U.S. Oh man! Well, wait, hold on. What's it? What's it called again? Your vice is a locked room, and only I have the key. But there's there's other titles. There's like Don't Torture a Duckling, which I yeah. think that's a terrible title, but whatever. It's a good movie. And then there's a strip nude for your killer. That's who could forget that one. That's <laughs> that's like the most that's like the b- most blunt sleaziest movie title I've ever come across. And an actress from that movie is in this movie. So I was frequently reminded of strip nude for your killer while I was watching Hatchet for the Honeymoon. <laughs> but we'll get to her in a bit. Anyways, so we're in this mannequin room. We see where he keeps his cleaver. It's in this kind of like a chiffre robe dresser kind of thing. And then that's that. So John attends a seance with his wife, and she communicates with her dead husband, and that's kind of all that that is. And then... <laughs> Hold on, before you get on from that, I love this scene, because she's just like, oh, I love you, I miss you so much, you're so much better than my current husband. Yeah, oh that's yeah, she's... Whole I mean, scene is. <laughs> the entire thing is, is rubbing it in his face. I don't even think she truly believes she's communicating with him. I think she's just wa- she just wants John to see how much she hates him. <laughs> yeah. So, I guess like the next day out on the lawn of the francisco franco lawn (laughs) inspector russell shows up to talk to john and he's like hey you know another woman in a wedding dress got killed what do you know about this and he's like what i don't know shit but inspector russell is an important character here a because he's basically porfiry petrovich from crime and punishment the 1866 novel by Fyodor dostoevsky of course we all remember Porfiry Petrovich. He's basically <laughs> ten, Lieutenant Columbo from the television series Columbo is <laughs> closely modeled upon Petrovich. And I suspect Inspector Russell is too. Uh, in that, like, this is an inspector, a detective guy who kind of knows almost everything that's gone on, like, yeah. right when we meet him. But he has to kind of take it slow and he tries to get, like, the killers to kind of reveal it themselves, which is that's every episode of Columbo. <laughs> Except for one when there's identical twins and you don't genuinely know which one is the killer at first. Oh, Martin Landau. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and uh, and but there's he's important for another reason here. Inspector Russell is dubbed by an obviously Italian movie. Everything was dubbed. Everybody's dubbed here. We're watching an English language dub, obviously. But Inspector Russell is dubbed by none other than Edward Mannix. The name means nothing to you, Jim. I'm certain of that. I'm fairly certain of that. But <laughs> if you <laughs> if you watch Italian horror movies from the 70s or the 80s, you will recognize this voice in everything. <laughs> Edward Mannix was he was just the guy of uh, Italian giallo supernatural horror. He's he, he's a dub actor in like every Italian horror movie just about. <laughs> I am so familiar with his voice. It's so distinct to me. It's like deep and it sounds like I hear it and it's like it's the sound of Italian horror to me. I hear that voice and I'm like, ah, Italian horror. Like, you know, I'm thinking of all the wonderful and even wonderfully shitty Italian horror movies I've seen. And and it's just like curling up with a warm blanket. It's like I'm home. When I hear Edward Mannix's voice. Uh, so yeah. we will we will come across Edward Mannix plenty of other times, I'm sure. He might be in Rat's Night of Terror. I don't know. He's I know he's the New York he's well, he's not the New York Ripper. He's the inspector in the New York Ripper. Uh he voices uh director cameos for Lucio Fulci here and there every now and then. So he's he's everybody. 
So anyways, so yeah, Inspector Russell's doing that thing. And then the model Alice, played by Femi Benussi, the actress from Strip Nude for Your Killer. Very beautiful woman. She's dark-haired here. I want to say she's like red red-headed in uh, Strip Nude for Your Killer. But she, she's got these like gorgeous eyes. Very distinct looking. But she goes up to John and says, Hey, I've got to quit working here because I'm getting married. And he pretends to be excited for her. And he's like, hey, why don't you stay after work? I'm going <laughs> to give you a wedding gift. And so that's exactly what she does. But that's not quite exactly what he does. He takes her down to his uh, secret creepy room. His creepy mannequin blood and black lace room. Gives her a wedding dress. He's like, hey, this is my gift. Why don't you wear this? And he, he kisses her at one point. And they share a dance. And you kind of get the impression that there's some... That there was probably a previous relationship between these two or something. Earlier yeah. in the movie, you see them kind of eyeing each other, too. Yeah, I was under the impression that they were having a relationship and then maybe continued yeah, yeah, to have they, a bit they, of a relationship. Yeah, there was, there's, there's something there. But anyways, he kills her, so who cares? <laughs> so he then burns the body with the wedding dress, and so we get a shot. We see at this Francisco Franco house that they have not yet elected the new pope because there's black smoke coming out. <laughs> when when I see just like a shot of, of like a smokestack like that, that's that's my first thought. Like, oh, new pope? No new oh no new pope. So and in this most recent murder, he saw he got a little bit more out of his flashback, right? Mm -hmm. He heard footsteps and he heard his name being called by a female voice. And pretty much like at this point, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what happened. But like, you know, the movie wants to slowly reveal that. I guess you do you do you, Mario Bava. But <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I'm one step ahead of the story already, at least. Patrick, I at least I appreciated that he finished the story, but I was very much in your shoes. I yeah, like, I, I mean, it's, well, this is, this is like, if we're going to complain about storytelling here tonight, this is a far better told story than Hellraiser, if oh, nothing else. I agree. Else. I agree. It's 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 more clear. And listen, we we're we're complaining because we saw something coming. Hellraiser, I don't even know what happened <laughs> after I saw it. Like, I mean, so this is a small complaint. So Mildred is going out of town, and John's excited about that. And she's like, well, you just get to act like you're divorced now for like a weekend or whatever. And so he meets up with model Helen, who this is a little bit of a weird scene because she she claims she's Alice's sister or something. No, she, she claims so. She's someone's sister. Yeah, she claims that she's somebody else's sister who also worked for Harrington, who also went missing. Possibly the woman on the train. Yeah. I, Maybe. I think it's her, right? I don't know. I mean, he killed five people before Alice, so he's got six. He names three of them specifically as like they were his favorites or something like which, uh, a little creepy. But yeah, so she claims she's somebody's sister. And she's like, so what did you ever do to her? Because no one saw her after all. <laughs> and, he, and he's like, this is, I get he's he's joking, but this is like, this is not a first date joke. No. <laughs> this is like a you're in a committed relationship and you fully understand each other's humors because he's like oh i killed her and raped her corpse or something it's like whoa or maybe maybe not corpse but he raped and killed her is what he said yeah yeah i think corpse wasn't it corpse uh maybe all i have in my notes i killed her or i raped her and then i buried her or something like that well if killed her is first you know yeah well because the buried her in his he says in his like hot in house his greenhouse. or something which yeah well he's, he uses like a yeah i think he means the greenhouse but he's he says like hot something like hot the hot house the hot, hot steamy box smokehouse. hot house yeah. hot mama i don't know but <laughs> hot anyways he, yeah so he's he's being honest about what he did to her 
<laughs> but but she kind of like laughs it off and then all of a sudden you realize oh this is a date now okay yeah <laughs> she wasn't incredibly repulsed by him so they're kind of hanging around and they're she's talking about like oh, so how often are you unfaithful to your wife and i don't think he answers <laughs> he answers that question but you get the impression the answer is all the time <laughs> And then she, yeah. she's also talking. She's like, I think she says she just turned 23. And she's like, oh, I'm exploring new things. And I, you know, I've, I just turned 23 and I've had many lovers. Yeah. And he's like, hmm. He's like, how he's like just how many lovers have you had? <laughs> and she's like, oh, I don't even keep count. Something like, oh, I've never tried to count. She's also got a great line in the scene. They're like walking around the grounds of Franco's uh-huh. villa. And he says something like, what br- brought you to the modeling industry? And she said, oh, I'm just an ordinary girl. I enjoy luxury and I'm terribly lazy. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's yeah, hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> that's a oh, great and she, and she also says, she implies that she's genuinely interested in him. And that has something to do with why she applied to work at his yeah. bridal model agency whatever the hell it is yeah, where they where they model dresses bras and sleepwear probably coffins too he's probably got a <laughs> few photos of those <laughs> so that night john is at home and he hears something upstairs and to his surprise mildred is back she took the first flight out of wherever she was Mm-hmm. and she's she's back just to annoy him again she hates <laughs> her husband and he's like he's trying to talk to her and he's trying to actually have a genuine conversation at one point like i think he already has the knife in the room at that, at that point but but he is trying to talk to her about like you know where, where did everything go wrong we used to be happy or something and then she like continues to mock him and says something about like oh you're, you know you're in your relationship with your mother and so he yeah. kills her yeah. <laughs> well, she doesn't die immediately. She's she's like kind of on the balcony or like on the stairs. She's still kind of alive, but she's dying and there's blood dripping down. And then there's a knock at John's door. So he goes downstairs and it is Edward Mannix's voice again. And this time he's with the fiance of Alice, who was the woman from Strip Nude for Your Killer, which I'm going to say that title as often as I can, because why not, <laughs> who he killed earlier. Yeah. And the cop, Inspector Russell, is like, hey, no one saw Alice leave your place. What happened to her? And then he's also like, we heard a scream. And at first you're like, okay, yeah, how does he get out of this? But then, then he shows them the television and Black <laughs> Sabbath, the 1963 Mario Bava film starring Boris Karloff and other, it's an anthology movie. So one of the segments stars Boris Karloff is showing and a woman screams in that. And then they're like, oh, okay, that could be what we heard. And then Spectre Russell's like, I've never really been a horror film fan myself, but like, oh, you know, shut up, Mario Bava. You, love horror <laughs> you can't write that dialogue. I don't even know if he wrote this movie i feel like it was his decision for black sabbath if nothing else oh absolutely while this scene is going on the camera pays a lot of attention to the blood dripping down from mildred because it's dripping down to the floor where they are where they're standing and talking and i like that attention to detail it felt very like edgar Allan poe like you know this dripping yeah. of blood and, and you know it's almost as like a manifestation of his guilt but at the same time this movie doesn't quite follow up on this in in kind of a satisfying way not just this scene but this doesn't really this isn't what tips off inspector russell yeah i will say that this is the scene of the movie that i realized that i was actually really enjoying this movie and that i was heavily invested in this because i felt so tense like i was literally on the edge of my uh, of, of this my is seat. a great scene yeah, yeah it really is yeah 
And I was like, oh, I hope he doesn't get caught right now. That'd be crazy. He's just murdered his wife. She's dead on the stairs. And you're right. And the camera was kind and of And she focusing. deserved it. Yeah, <laughs> no, she did. <laughs> no, of course. I, I actually, we'll, we'll end up talking a lot, even though Mildred's dead. We'll end up talking a lot more about her because we do continue to see her. And I think this scene here is the last scene where I kind of like anything involving Mildred. Yeah, I agree. Oh, and and of course, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting this, but every time he murders someone, he sees a little bit more of the incident in the past. And this time, I think he sees his mother dead. And you assume it's his father, too. We learn later on that it's not. But mm. you see you see two people, or the mother, maybe not dead, but she's dying. And she's the one calling his name. So he's burying Mildred in the greenhouse. And as he's doing that, he's seeing a little boy who I assume is the same boy from the train, you know, because this boy clearly isn't actually there. It's some kind of, it's another manifestation. I mean, I don't think we know at this point for certain, but I mean, I think we can kind of assume it's him as a boy. Yeah. It's him from the memory. So he buries her and then he goes about in his next day and he's he's like at breakfast and he's got his like woman servants there and they're like pouring a drink and he's like, who are you pouring? Why are you pouring that? And, he, and she's like, oh, it's for your wife. And he's just like, oh, that's weird. And then they have this kind of like fashion show and he's talking to, I think it's Helen. It might not be Helen. He's talking to one of the models and then he's like, hey, is your mother going mad? Who's she talking to over there? <laughs> And then, and then she looks back and she, and she get, comes back to him and she's like, "Are you blind? She's talking to your wife." <laughs> yeah, I like that. And it's a like, lot. What? and it's like, and then and then we see a little bit of the wife and, and it's like, okay, wh- where is this going? Where where is the story going? And then there's a really weird scene where he goes to the uh, he goes to like a nightclub. <laughs> so he goes to a nightclub and he starts hitting on a woman and she rejects him because he's clearly there with his wife. <laughs> But but she's like, what is this scene? Where are we? She calls him like a pervert and slaps him in the face or something. It's like, yeah, what, kick what's him going out, kick him here? out of the club. Well, first off, at at that kind of fashion show party, his the ghost of his wife approaches him and says, "Everybody else can see me, but you." And except I'm gonna he follow sees her you. when yeah, she says that. Her. But yeah, and he says, and "I'm gonna." Uh, she says, "I'm gonna follow you around forever for the rest of again your life. to the till death do you yeah. know." Until his death do we part kind of thing. Yeah, and for some reason, he has her body in a bag, but I thought he had buried her, and he had said, I'm not going to put you in the incinerator. You don't deserve it. Yeah, I don't think it's all of her body. I think it's like, I don't even know if it's her body. I think it's like maybe like her ring or something. Oh, okay, It's like a few of her possession. I don't think it's her. Well, yeah, because then for some reason, he takes the bag to the club. Or maybe yeah, the bag just or he's just hit, chilling with it, and yeah. then eventually he throws it into the the Seine, I guess. Yeah, or whatever river in Spain this actually was. I don't know. Oh, and also, Ed, this is I don't like this scene, but again, going back to Porfiry Petrovich kind of stuff at that fashion show, Inspector Russell comes, and I think he says something about like to um <laughs> to John about like oh who do you think the next victim's going to be <laughs> like and John's like oh I wouldn't know and or, or no I think he says like, what do you think the next victim will be wearing which of your dresses will the next victim be wearing and he's like oh I wouldn't know and Inspector Russell's thinking like oh yeah no you do know but he also says <laughs> he says he had one of his assistants look up the film that he was watching and he's like there was not a scream before that scene that you showed me so he's thinking that scream we heard wasn't from the movie but i'm thinking like and i'm thinking okay yeah it's not like he rewound anything you know that if this is just on tv 
right? This is pre-DVR, yeah. pre-VHS even. Yeah. I mean, so I don't even know how he's watching this. I guess it's just on Italian television. But maybe it was a scream from a commercial, you know, a Geico commercial <laughs> where a woman screams. Oh, no. I, don't know. I did like that scene, though. I like. I really like that. Oh, I thought it was stupid. I like it in the stupid way. Listen, I like any character who is voiced by Edward Mannix, <laughs> except for the lead character in the New York Ripper, because that guy is an irredeemable fuck. But, I mean, I just love me some Edward Mannix. Oh, and this is also... Is Inspector <laughs> Russell <laughs> tells John that his plan to catch the killer is just is basically just to sit back and wait. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I, I understand, like, you wouldn't divulge anything about an active investigation to, <laughs> to, to a just a random person, whether he's a suspect or not. But, like, what kind of plan is that? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> Italian police. I mean, French police. I mean, Spanish police. <laughs> you know, there there's some different methods, I guess. Uh, I I hear those Spanish like their siestas. What's a siesta? Afternoon nap. Just gonna sit back and wait. Listen, he's a French police officer who happens to be out of his jurisdiction in Spain. Okay, that's what's going on. Here. <laughs> so Helen visits John to stay overnight with him there's also a weird scene where john is like trying to break into someone's home and kill someone but we don't really know who and what and then it it gets broken up this is probably my least favorite scene in the movie because i don't know what's happening i mean it's well shot it's neat to look at but i have no idea who the hell he's trying to kill yeah and yeah he doesn't kill anyone and so he comes back home and helen is there and she's thinking, like, you know, let's have sex. And he's like, oh, yeah, maybe. That sounds like a good idea. But he's also kind of, like, thinking, probably shouldn't be here because I think he's, yeah, I think he doesn't really want to kill Helen at this moment. Yeah. And then Inspector Russell shows up and is like, hey, where were you five minutes ago? We just saw someone trying to break into someone else's <laughs> home and we think it was you. And, <laughs> and, and Helen vouches for him. And Helen's like, no, you know, I've been with him all night. We've been busy. So he leaves, Inspector Russell leaves, and John takes Helen to the mannequin room. He thinks he's like one glimpse away from knowing what happened to him in the past at this point. Mm-hmm. He attacks her with his butcher's knife or cleaver or whatever. Cleaver. Let's go with cleaver. His yeah. hatchet, which is not a hatchet. <laughs> his Italian hatchet. Even though he's he doesn't kill her at this moment when he's attacking her, he does see what happened. And he sees that he killed his mother and her new husband. And I'm thinking like, well, no shit. I could have told you that an hour ago. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what we get. And it's like, like, okay, he killed his mom. It's because he couldn't stand to see his mother remarry. Yeah. And he had a line earlier about it, which I thought was kind of a funny line, where he's like, a woman should only live up until her wedding day or something like that. Like, whoa, okay. (laughs) Wait a minute. (laughs) That's a a philosophy I'm not familiar with right there, but... (laughs) Anyway, so as he's attacking Helen, Helen unlocks the door into the (laughs) creepy mannequin room, and Inspector Russell and some other cops emerge, and so Helen was helping them all along. Helen was like an undercover cop, I guess. Yeah, or, you know, was it... Or maybe not not a cop, but someone helping. Again, going back to Inspector Russell was really on to him the entire time. I mean, I definitely, I mean, as soon as, was it the first time that we saw Inspector Russell in the greenhouse or when, yeah, I think they end up in the greenhouse at one point, but I think he just meets him on the lawn. 
Okay, yeah. Well, from that first meeting, you knew that the inspector was yeah. onto him. Because he's like, hey, five women have been murdered. <laughs> all in the wedding dresses that you have. <laughs> you know, or they've all Yeah, you almost wonder how, your house. how he had gotten away with it for as long as he did. <laughs> I think we've got some police incompetence here. <laughs> when we are introduced... I guess reintroduced to Helen uh, at the airport. And she does say that she wants to know where her sister went. I mean, I think that's probably genuine. She is actually looking for her sister. And she, like, so I guess from that point, you can assume that she's suspicious. I didn't think well. that was genuine. I think undercover cop, or at least someone helping out the cops. And we're just trying to get information on this one to see if he slips up and says anything about her. I didn't mm-hmm. think she was actually the sister, but it doesn't matter. Maybe she is, maybe she isn't. But Helen survives, and John is loaded into the back of, like, one of those meat wagon kind of things. A like paddy the, wagon uh, or something, yeah. Yeah, paddy wagon, excuse me. Okay, so I hate this ending scene. I hate it so much. So he's in there, and they're taking him away, and there's, like, a minor discussion about, like, oh, there's going to be some weird psychological evaluations on him or something. Mm-hmm. And as he's in there... He sees his wife appear. Oh, because I think they found the bag. They they fished the bag out of the river and they put that in there. Isn't it the, 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 the appeared, bag back? It appeared on the steps when he got home after he threw it into the river. That's right. Yes. He sees his wife and she laughs at him and is like, till death do us part through the rest of eternity in your life at the insane asylum and an eternity in hell. She laughs at him and he just screams. No, like he's like, oh, my God. And here's, and this is where the movie ends, but here's why I hate that ending, even though I like the movie. This feels like an unearned moment for Mildred. This movie ends on like a high note for her. Yeah. When, listen, I mean, <laughs> am I content to say Mildred is a better person than John in this movie? Yes. Am I content to say Mildred is a good person? Fuck no. No, definitely not. <laughs> no, Mildred. And and like, why are we ending, why are we ending on her victory lap? You know, whether she's dead or not. I guess, really, it, we shouldn't see it as a Mildred victory. We should see it, especially because this is Mil- this Mildred is like his imagination, I guess, right? So it's not a Mildred victory so much as the ultimate John loss. Except he didn't seem as annoyed by Mildred as Mildred was annoyed by him earlier in the movie. So it's like, that's why it doesn't quite work in that way. And that's why it feels more like a Mildred victory, <laughs> because she hated him from the first moment we saw her. And now she gets to, she gets one over on him, the ultimate one over on him. Whereas like he didn't seem to hate her that much. And now his hell is her looking at him. So you know what the weird thing about this was? Because I agree with you, that ending isn't really like deserved for Mildred. But after watching it, I thought that this movie really felt different from like uh, everything up until the death of Mildred for me it was good it, it was a great story I enjoyed it but everything after it was like what the fuck is this this is so it, it's not necessarily tonally different but it's just like its own completely different story like it could have worked as its own movie if it had been stretched out I looked it up and Mario Bava wanted to work with the actress who played Mildred Laura Betty Betty oh but... Warren Beatty of course <laughs> yeah I loved him in Bonnie and Clyde <laughs> So yeah, so Bava wanted to work with this actress, but the plot for the movie, as it was written on the paper, had no space for her. So her character was added to the film. That makes it all the weirder that the movie ends with that character. Yeah, exactly. If she's, if she's like a slap together last minute edition, why are we ending the movie on her, you know? 
I don't understand why they ended it on her and why Bava insisted on including this actress. She's a fine actress, you know, don't get me wrong, but she adds I I have a trouble. I I have trouble judging anyone's performance in a movie that's dubbed. Yeah. Because like whether they're good or bad, you you have to you have to take into account obviously the performance, but then there's also the the vocal performance is like something different. Sometimes yeah. someone can be giving a great performance, but the dub actor is terrible, and so you kind of think they're doing a horrible job. But like it's so I, I tend to kind of avoid talking about if an actor is really good or really bad in an Italian horror movie from this period or an Italian movie from this period. So I'll just say Edward Mannix is great. Because he's Edward Mannix. <laughs> and Femi Benussi <laughs> yeah. is the most just enchanting eyes I've ever seen, basically. Oh, yeah, so that's I, all absolutely. I, I agree with you on that. But, I mean, I, yeah, I guess for this, I mean, she was a fine actress in the sense that I didn't have any issues with her. But, yeah, it's just so weird that they would end it on a character that was added. Because I think her storyline works perfectly until she gets murdered. Like, that's great. But then as soon as she starts showing up as this spectral hallucination to everybody else except for john yeah 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 and, I, but then she also shows up to john you <laughs> know little... only when she wants to i guess it's like the last half hour of the movie maybe the whole last half yeah, hour was, doesn't really work jim so what did you think of the movie as a whole though the movie as a whole i enjoyed i thought it was great again as i said earlier when mildred had been murdered and i was on the edge of my seat waiting for the inspector to see the blood dripping down from the from the top of franco's staircase i was i, I was amazed that that's when i realized i was really invested in this movie so on a whole I, I thought it was great i thought it was a great fun italian horror movie and it was like my second italian horror movie i guess so that was fun the thing i will say you ruined something about this movie for me it's whenever, I think there's two scenes in this movie where John reaches into that cabinet buffet thing to pull out the meat cleaver. But that's almost the same fucking piece of furniture in Spider Baby. And spiders live in that. And spiders crawl out of it. <laughs> like these tarantulas. So I kept on expecting Well, that's where they tarantulas. find the black dude's ear, even though it's a white ear. <laughs> yeah, that one. Yeah. Yeah, so I kept on expecting tarantulas to crawl out of it every time well, I saw I didn't, it. <laughs> I didn't ruin that for you. Jack Hill ruined that for you. He directed that movie. Damn you, Jack Hill. So yeah, I enjoyed this movie as well. I'm going to echo a lot of what you said. Pretty much up to the point when, when we're showing Black Sabbath on TV and we find out and, and we get Mildred killed and there's the blood dripping down. Pretty much up until that point, I'm thinking, or like through that point, I should say, I'm thinking... This is great. This is one of the best Bava movies I've seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, like the best Bava, it's like four or five that I all consider kind of equally. And then I've seen probably five others from him that I don't like quite as much. But then following that scene, the story just loses all of its momentum. Or maybe not all of it, but it loses a lot of its momentum. Because it's like the last half hour or so of the movie, 35 minutes maybe, is just kind of like, it's not bad. But there's not a whole lot driving the story. I mean, really, at that point, all that we have really as the narrative thrust is him wanting to find out what's in his vision. But it's like, we already knew. <laughs> I mean, <Yeah. laughs> like yeah. watching it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know pretty early on. I think they could have done if they worked something more with the Helen character throughout where... Because, I mean, he has that kind of date with her before he kills his wife. But I think if they could have set that up as, like, maybe more of a romance and then he, like, felt conflicted about killing her, but he knew he had to kill her, like, that could have been interesting. I think that would have been more interesting than, or at least to me, than wife showing up as a ghost and then not showing up. Something else I like about this is that drive, John's drive, 
to see the answer in that vision. I like that more than just him being psycho. You got to have something, I guess. You, you know, and every catch, psychopath needs some kind of motivation. I don't remember the dude's motivation in Peeping Tom, but I'm sure it was something. Obviously, psycho, we learn Norman's motivation through a haphazardly shot ending scene where they deliver all the exposition at the end of the movie. Yeah, so, so you don't want just psycho killer with nothing. I mean, you, you can have a psycho killer with no motivation who just kills people if it's, like, part of a bigger story. Mm-hmm. You, you can't do a character-driven story with that kind of thing. Like, I just saw the movie Freaky, which is, you know, it's the horror comedy cross on Freaky Friday. And, I mean, the killer in that is just a killer. But, like, there's there's more to the story than it's The story's not about the killer. I mean, so that's it's, it's fine in a, in a movie like that. Well, and you know, too, I was thinking the visions that John is having. Do you think you and I could see that ending coming a mile away just because this is 2021 and everything has, well, not everything, but a lot of things have kind of been done to death and that was just a easily guessable ending? Or do you think if we had seen that in 1970, we would have been like, oh, what's going to happen? Who knows? I think we still would have figured it out. Again, because like, <laughs> we've seen Peeping Tom, we've seen Psycho at that point. Yeah, that's fair. You're right. Believe me, the Italians have seen those movies, too, because they rip off everything. Wait, wait, you're saying the Italians rip off ideas from movies? That <laughs> I mean, Fistful seen? of Dollars is just like, <laughs> yeah, fuck it, we don't, eh, Kurosawa, we don't give a shit. But yeah, anyways, Jim, which of these two movies did you prefer? A Hatchet for the Honeymoon. I really enjoyed watching it, and I was pleasantly surprised by it. I do like Hellraiser, but there's no real plot and it gets kind of confusing and muddled at the end but it's still an enjoyable movie but i I still have to go with hatchet for the honeymoon how about you well i'm gonna disagree and i'm gonna go (gasps) hellraiser and the reasoning is yeah i mean hellraiser is a narrative nightmare i mean the the story of that is like what the fuck but at the same time i i really respect horror movies I mean, I, maybe I shouldn't have used the word nightmare just now, but like, I respect horror movies that feel like nightmares. And Hellraiser pulls that off. I mean, mm. not as well as, like, say, the original Suspiria, you know, because that, to me, is, like, the epitome of that kind of thing. But we have this, a lot of uncomfortable things going on, the homeless dude spying on Kirsty, mm. the whole, like, the, the way the wall rips apart after the puzzle box is solved like little things like that are like yeah this is cool and then the cenobites themselves yeah they don't get a lot of screen time every every (laughs) single thing pinhead says is awesome though i mean we didn't really go over his lines he's got the no tears please it's a waste of good suffering classic line even though i don't really under it doesn't make sense to me like what is suffering supposed to be spent on like (laughs) do tears spend the suffering is the suffering gone after the tears that's one way to look at it I like is, now is he like a is he like a like a black lodge entity where he feasts on suffering like the Garmin Bosia kind of thing maybe I don't know but he's got a great line where he says that the puzzle box shows you the pleasures of either heaven or hell but he said some call us angels some call us devils but to all we oh, fuck, I don't remember the rest of the line he but... says they're travelers is like the correct way to describe them or yeah something. I, and I was like I don't get any of this but it's awesome yeah, no, I mean, the Cenobites are cool. They don't make the movie. I think it's a fine movie even without the Cenobites. You know, you get the rubbery, schlocky guy, too. That's fun, too. So, yeah, I mean, Hatcher for the Honeymoon, really, I mean, I, I liked it. I for sure liked it. But the last half hour or so was was a big disappointment. Granted, that's in relation to how good the first hour or so was. Mm-hmm. But 
Hellraiser, the dips are all throughout the movie because it's the story, but, but like, I mean, I'm enjoying it all the way through. Whereas Hatchet, it's like, it's good, it's good, it's good, and then it's just like, meh. So it kind of ends on a not very good note for me. Jim, how do you think this works out as a drive-in double feature? Well, Patrick, hold on to your butt. This is the second time, I think, I'm going to say that this works really well as a drive-in double feature. Uh, Yeah, I like it. Uh, They're both horror movies. One is Italian and more... (laughs) One's British? (laughs) Yeah, one's uh, one's Italian, story-driven, a little silly, a little dated, but I enjoyed it. And the other one is British and terrifying and nightmarish and gory in the extreme, and I love it. And it's got a rubber monster. Yeah, and it's got a rubber fat upside-down scorpion that has a dolly beneath it, and I like that too. I'm kind of torn. I mean, they are both horror movies, obviously, but to me, they're like, I'm usually looking for horror movies that if the first movie doesn't give me something that you kind of want out of a drive-in movie, then you're hoping that the second movie gives you that. And I didn't get the, you know, we got our slimy, rubbery, bloody shit in the first one. (laughs) And the second movie for an Italian horror movie is not super violent or gory. It's disturbing in, in like a psychological way. You know what? I think I'm going to sound like a pervert here, but <laughs> I think this night needed more sex appeal. And we got beautiful women in Hash for the Honeymoon, but who cares? They just get killed, you know? Like, I, 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 we, I think from this night we were missing sex appeal and we were missing comedy. I mean, we get the rubber monster, which, you know, there's a little bit of laughs there. But So I'm going to say no, it's not a great drive-in double feature. I think there's just a lot we're missing here. Wow. It's, now it's you know I mean it's like whatever see the movies I don't give a shit but there we you know I wanted something more out of this experience. So Patrick, now that we've got those out of the way, what are we doing next week? All right, we've got an a uh, couple of 80s horror classics here, one of which is a bit more classic than the other, but hey, we've got a Nightmare on Elm Street Streaming on HBO Max, the original from 1984 from director Wes Craven, aka the auteur behind Shocker. And so we've got Freddy, and then we've got Puppets, because we've got Puppet Master from 1989, the original, also streaming on HBO Max. Sorry to our Canadian, Australian, British, (laughs) German, Kenyan listeners, if any of you are out there. Uh, You're not. If I see a country like that pop up in our listeners, I'm like, oh, someone used a VPN, right? (laughs) Yeah. So A Nightmare on Elm Street, Puppet Master, it's going to be fun, it's going to be bloody, it's going to be It's gonna be a little weird, probably. Uh, I know you've seen A Nightmare on Elm Street because it's one of the few movies that you and I have seen together. Yep. And I am assuming you haven't seen Puppet Master. I have not. I only know about it in name. I've seen it. It was <laughs> Puppet Master, actually, was and once I came home from England, you know, I had my two weeks straight where I'm supposed to stay in the house and everything because this was during covid puppet master was the first movie i saw <laughs> because this was, it was actually before hbo max debuted so it was just hbo go i think is what it was called oh yeah okay being in england you know i miss hbo and so i'm home and I'm like okay what's let's see what's on here i'm like bam puppet master hell yeah i'll watch that at one in the morning or whatever so yeah i'll watch puppet master <laughs> <laughs> puppet master and me we have a fond relationship <laughs> that was the, it's still actually i've only seen one puppet master movie to date and is that the first one yes obviously because that's <laughs> the one i was just talking about watching <laughs> idiot <laughs>
<laughs> but anyways, uh, thanks for joining us this time. We hope to catch you later. Please be sure to rate us on whatever platform pod podcasting platform you uh, listen to us on. Yeah, be sure to do that because that really helps us out. Join us next time for some Freddy and some puppets, but not Freddy. <laughs> Freddy is a puppet master in the Nightmare on Elm Street Three. He's not a puppet master in the first one, so unfortunately. We don't quite get the Freddy Puppet Master crossover that I think we all want, that we're all seeking in our lives. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Take care, everybody.